With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome to After 9. I'm your host, Eric Allen. And this morning we have four panelists, John Zukowski, James Steidel, Peter Ewart, and Herb Martin. So nothing new in the lineup. These boys have been here before. So we're going to start off with uh, logging uh, <clears throat> overall. Of course, we're unlogging quite a bit, but really that's one of the biggest and major problems we have in this area right now. So it's not going to go away. <clears throat> I mean, there's a good part of logging, creating jobs, etc., and then there's a the bad part. But anyway, uh, the ground is moving and there's landslides and that down around the Quinell area. And uh, this is really a serious problem over time. So Peter's going to start the program off and give us an overview of just what's happening out there, and then we'll discuss it for a while. So go ahead there, Peter. Thanks, Eric. By way of acknowledgement, a lot of the information I'm going to present comes from an article in the Prince George Citizen by uh, Brenna Owen. Back in the spring of 2020 and 2021, a couple of troubling things happened. The roads surrounding Quinell were washed out, which was bad enough. But then a UBC professor, Eunice Aliila, doing research, discovered that a large part of the town of Quinell was actually shifting as part of an ancient landslide, affecting about 20% of the population in the town. Indeed, the ground under the houses and roads had shifted about 80 centimeters since 1998. And um, how uh, this uh, UBC professor sort of got onto this thing was he, he noticed, he wondered about the difference in property values that uh, had gone down in the affected area. Many residents actually knew knew about this. Uh, and actually, I heard about it um, a few years back. Uh, so, someone who did paving uh, told me that a, f- a few years back. And I, I wondered at the time. It sounded strange, but uh, apparently it was true. According to Alila, this land shifting in the, in the town, which he called Awakening the Dragon, was the result of extensive forest loss because of over-harvesting of trees over many years, as well as the pine beetle epidemic and subsequent salvage logging, as well as forest fires. But it's estimated between 40 to 60 percent of the primary forests have been lost in the watersheds west of Quinell, and it's caused what is called a hydrological problem. According to Alila, Extensive forest loss means significantly more moisture seeps into the ground and stays there. There is no tree canopy to slow the spring melt by intercepting precipitation and shading the snowpack. At the same time, there are far fewer trees to pump moisture out of the ground. So west of the Fraser River in Quinell, oversaturation is putting excessive pressure on soils year after year, surpassing their capacity to absorb the water. And it's that pressure that can cause soils to cave in and land to move. The, now, the BC government estimates that, that the damage caused by the landslides throughout the, throughout the Caribou region would be eligible for federal disaster assistance of almost $1 billion. And so far, the province has received $405 million in advance payments from Ottawa to aid rebuilding. But Alila is concerned that the money spent rebuilding roads and other venues will be wasted if officials and engineers don't take into account the actual causes of the problem. But so far, both the province and the federal government still have their heads stuck in the sand regarding the causes of the problem. 
either refusing to comment about the role of excessive logging in all of this or just blaming it on climate change. Bob Simpson, the former mayor of Quesnel, has said that the massive clear cuts as well as beetle infestation and wildfires have changed the hydrology of the area significantly. And he says that, quote, anyone who thinks otherwise is living in la-la land. Then Mike Morris, the B.C. Liberal MLA for Prince George Mackenzie, he echoes that sentiment and says that the forests west of Quesnel have been logged to death and that treating hydrological changes due to forest loss is one of the most high-risk situations in the province. One thing is clear, without recognizing the causes of the problems means that it will likely only get worse given that many communities, rivers, valleys, and other settings are at risk in the province. Indeed, the town of Williams Lake is having a similar landslide problem. And then there's a case of Grand Forks in the Kootenays that had massive flooding in the community several years back, which has been linked to massive overcutting on mountain slopes, and for which the, the community has launched a huge class action lawsuit against the BC government and the forest companies. One of the big problems is that in the face of out of control and irresponsible logging, communities are powerless and have no jurisdiction. So that's why going back to the 1940s, some communities decided to have community forests to, get, to gain more control of the surrounding watershed. And that is exactly what the community of Peachland is considering to get more control over its watershed. In any case, there's a big problem here across the problem, which is demanding solutions. Our forests and landscapes in this province are in bad shape. To implement solutions, we need science, not private corporate interests, to be in command. And communities need to have a say. Yeah, okay, so that pretty well covers uh, <clears throat> what the problem is out there. I'm going to go to James next, but just before I do that, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I go to Quinnell uh, Golfing, go to West Quinnell to the golf course. And every year the, the road is dug up and paved and come back the next spring and she's shifted again. And this has been going on for 20, 25 years. So in West Quinnell, the movement of that land has been around for a long time. Clear-cut logging and uh, beetle kill and that has just made it that much worse. It's moving faster and... Uh, there's some really huge problems in our forests. But anyway, James, what do you think about this? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, Eric. I think a lot of that, a lot of those uh, landslides are kind of pre-existing and have, have kind of showed on the lack of stability for quite a while. I actually came up from uh, from Kelowna yesterday, and, uh, you know, I drove over. When you go on the uh, north of the Cottonwood River, there's uh, that... They've been doing some ongoing road work there because that's been slipping and sliding for a few years now, and they've cleared some trees below there. They're going to spend quite a bit of money in there to to work on that. And, uh, you know, I notice right above that hill, uh, there's a bunch of sprayed pine plantations. Like, they sprayed out that forest uphill from there. Quite a, quite a big uh, chunk of forest up there. And, you know, as I do, I, I think about uh, all that underground root structure of the deciduous component in that forest that's been poisoned out and killed. So the biggest uh, organism on the planet is is this aspen forest in Pando, and they, you know, they weighed it up. It's not just the trees that uh, have a lot of that mass, it's the underground root system. Like, there's a lot of living material 
underground that you don't see in the to do with aspen trees right so if you spray that all of a sudden you've got this huge mat of interconnected fibrous material underground that isn't holding that ground together anymore uh, who knows you know they're not even looking at that kind of stuff but would that lead to a lack of stability would that allow the ground to become a little bit more fluid and that's just right uphill from there so you have to wonder about that kind of stuff and it also ties in with forest fires you know like if if you if forest fires are being attributed to you know the erosion and soil movement uh, maybe we should try to do stuff to reduce forest fires and that that means we stop spraying and brushing the deciduous which can dramatically reduce the risk of forest fire so and and also they 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 have really um they have really good erosion control characteristics so i think we got to have a holistic view of how forestry is is working not just the clear cuts but what's happening after the logging you know are we helping these forests recover uh, as best as they possibly can and and as far as i'm concerned the answer is no yeah part that article that somewhere in that article that peter was referring to they uh, they mentioned that uh, <clears throat> you know reforestation is going to solve this problem but the person that was making that report said that that's not the case it's going to take decades decades <laughs> well, it's, it's for, uh, for this to come back it's not going to you just can't plant trees and expect it to do what a fully grown well, tree was going to do well so and, if you're, and if you're just planting pine trees like and, and nobody yeah. i don't understand why nobody talks about that like you know if you're going to do an article on on this like why, why aren't you talking about the spraying and the brushing like almost every single recent clear cut west of quinell is being sprayed or brushed well, the people, right, the people writing the articles, I mean, they, uh, you know, how they discovered that the ground was moving is kind of cute because everybody else in uh, Quinell knew about it. But the guy writing the article didn't know about it. And he found out it because the house prices were different in West Quinell than they were in, in Quinell. And they wondered why. And then they found out because West Quinell, the ground is moving. So that's not really a scientific discovery. That's a, that's a kind of an economic one that happened to lead them to something else. Yeah. So, Herb. Yeah, <clears throat> there's um, uh, there is actually science. Uh, Ministry of Force um, had uh, investigated uh, this um, situation back in 2017. Uh, they focus on uh, watersheds in southern BC. And um, they said natural or logging-related forest disturbances over a large enough area can affect hydro um, hydrogeomorphic processes at the watershed level, at the watershed scale. And um, in particular, basically they said uh, anything that's logged over 25% uh, clear-cut uh, experienced significant shifts in the timing and magnitude of snowmelt-dominated stream flows and peak flow events. So, I mean, the Ministry of Forest has known about this. And they keep on approving these clear cuts. So it's it's a the, the bigger problem here is that it is a, a pattern uh, that's, that's existed for a long time. Ministry of Forests uh, basically underestimates the long term costs of logging. So if we go back and uh, back to the um, the floods uh, a few years ago that washed out the all the highways. Um, uh, the same UBC professor documented uh, where, where the area where five people were swept off the highway and, and killed. There was a, a, a poorly uh, constructed logging road right above the highway, and so that's that's tied in. Um, it, but if you look at the at, so that's a human cost. But if you look at the cost of repairing the Coquihalla, that's another billion dollars. So that's um, and you know so the Coquihalla was designed 
for one in 200 year events, the highway didn't last more than 40 years. Uh, again, because logging was allowed after they built the Coquihalla above the highway. Uh, you know, you know, there's a billion there for landslides, a billion there for uh, flood damage. We're not. Uh, how do you how do you even quantify the people that were killed, all the people that, that suffered uh, damages to their business or property in those floods? Um, if you look at um, uh, the fires, okay, that have, that have happened um, over the last number of years, BC uh, spends an average of three hundred million dollars a year fighting fires. That doesn't include the cost of uh, uh, rehabilitating burned plantations. So three hundred million dollars uh, a year average, but that uh, Shovel Lake fire, uh, the, the the cost of fighting the fire was relatively modest at thirty million dollars. The cost of replacing thirty thousand hectares of plantation was another three hundred million dollars. So you know a billion here, a billion there. You're starting to talk some real money. And um, where is this coming from? It's coming from the taxpayer. And right now we're looking at uh, the all the companies like uh, the majors, Canfor, West Fraser. They're expecting a big gift from the uh, American government of uh, nine billion dollars that's been accrued by the uh, the softwood lumber tax over the past six years. And it's time for the government to, uh, I think, negotiate uh, with the Americans directly and make sure, uh, establish a retroactive tax. Uh, the taxpayer shouldn't have to pay this these funds. And we've got to have something in the kitty because forestry no longer pays the bills. And it's, it's a taxpayer that's left holding the bag. Uh, and we've just seen it time and time again. And there's no reason where, you know, Canfor made $800 million last year. Do they need more money? And are they going to invest it here anyway? No, they're not uh, on either on either uh, account. Sure, of course they need more money. Come on, what, <laughs> are you crazy here? They, you know the shareholders need the more money, and uh, how, how are these hot Vancouver hospitals going to get their donations if uh, Canfor isn't earning a billion plus? Yeah, I guess well, I guess thirty million dollars is a fair uh, fair return for uh, billions of dollars of taxpayer uh, funding. Uh, sorry, just to to jump in there. I, another thing I noticed on the uh, drive yesterday is there was a fire near Falkland from 2003, 20, 20 years ago. Uh, that would be just southeast of Falkland there. There's no trees regrowing. Like, you've got whole slopes up there that are barren. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of that, especially in the southern interior, where we've lost our forests and, and they're not growing back. Um, and I'm sure they've replanted that place multiple times. Uh, so I think kind of that's that's another thing that's um, that's happening. I think is that uh, there's weird stuff going on in our forests that yeah. I don't know if what we have the solution for. Yeah, well, we'll talk about this a little bit more because there's lots of different uh, aspects to it, and uh, taxing the big corporations is not necessarily a solution. We're gonna go for a break now. Okay, we're gonna go for a break. Hello, I'm Carlos Núñez, the Galician Piper. We're the Ducks. Hey, this is Tim Brennan with the Dropkick Murphys. Hey, this is Dave King from Flag and Molly. Sean Smith from Lunasup. Karen Casey here. This is Ian Byrne from the Elders. Join me, Patricia Fraser, for the best Celtic music mix. Celt in a Twist, Canada's contemporary Celtic radio hour. Celt in a Twist with your host, Patricia Fraser. Tuesday nights at 8, following Fiddle Fest with AJ, here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. 
Are you a leader who wants to take their leadership to the next level? Do you have an emerging leader on your team who needs support? At Pivot Leader, our Leaders in Business program combines leadership training with one-on-one coaching to help leaders just like you. You'll learn how to deal with people better, handle conflict, hire and keep staff, delegate more effectively, read financial statements, and learn coaching skills to move your team along. There's a less stressful way to improve your outcomes. We can show you how. If you'd like to be a better leader, reach out to us today at pivotleader.com. Pivot Leader will help you grow, train, and sell your business. Does Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery offer baking for diabetics? Yes. Cheesecake, carrot cake, blueberry pie, brownies, and more. The cheesecake and carrot cake each have four net carbs per slice. Blueberry pie has five, and the brownie has just three net carbs. Do these specialty baked goods taste good? People love them. What else would you like to say to our diabetic listeners? Come to Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery next to Pharmasave on 7th at Quebec. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, winds in the north at 30, a high of 1 with a morning wind chill to minus 11. Tonight clear, north winds becoming light this evening, a low of minus 10. For Tuesday, sunny and a high of 5. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. Uh... John, I'm going to bring you on to this, uh, just before you you start. Now, this is my question. <clears throat> Some of these big uh, uh, beetle kill that we had a number of years ago, like it was, you know, especially down through the Cornell area, it was, it was huge, absolutely huge, and all over the place. It was just unbelievable. But there was some controversy between the government and the logging industry. The loggers, logging industry basically said they're not going to log beetle kill and work around the good trees, the fir and the spruce and that that's in there. And they wanted an all or nothing thing and they wanted cheap stumpage. Otherwise, they weren't interested in doing it. So the government, if I recall correctly, at that time made a decision to allow them to clear cut the whole area. That was a wrong decision in my, as far as I'm concerned. They should have either let it stand or not log it at all but not clear-cut it that was actually i'll go further and say it was oh no i won't i was going to insult the decision but anyway what do you think about that john that they should have maybe uh looked at that a little more uh you know from a a conservation point of view and see what the long-term effect would be by clear-cutting that whole area well yeah i I believe that uh, sitting back and looking at your 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 weather forecast for specific areas, and uh, just looking at the whole the whole uh, the picture of what areas, how large an area are you looking at logging that that's that's dead? I think selective selective logging would have been the more appropriate manner to to deal with. It's it's a you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't. Uh, you get all this dead standing trees, which is basically a whole bunch of match heads just waiting for an opportunity. So you've got to take them down in order to protect the other viable forest. But maybe if you do that, you need to get in right away with replanting. Uh, you know, so log it, replant it as soon as possible so that you retain the ground cover. Uh, a lot of this problem that we're seeing with the land shifting and stuff is it's it's natural earth history uh just we're promoting it because we're skinning off the the ground cover 
so there's nothing to hold the water. Yep. And, you know, it just snowballs from there. So we have a, a situation here now. Years ago, if I'm driving downtown in June and I look up in the hills, all around me there's green except where there's clear cuts and there's still snow there. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on here. The white snow reflects the sunlight and it takes two or three times longer for that snow to melt than it does from the top of the trees with the wind blowing through it and from the underground of the tree, like the forest floor, where it melts as it comes down during the winter and, you know, spring thaws or whatever. So that that actually impedes your uh, your forest or your the melting of snow in the forest by a month, month and a half, possibly in some areas, two months, depending. If it's on the north side of a mountain, it might be there halfway through the summer. So... That means you got water coming down year-round in certain areas because there's nothing there to hold it. And then again, we get back to replanting. Well, 40 years later, it might, but then you're killing off everything else in the forest. So, James, you want to touch on that and just... Yeah, you bet. So I, there's there's a lot of complicated stuff going on with forest hydrology. I've, I've spent a fair bit of time looking at it. Uh, well, one of the things that um, I think Yousef talks about uh, in that UBC study is that uh, if you have a fully mature old growth conifer forest actually not very much precipitation makes it to the forest floor in those stands so in the winter time uh, a lot of the snow just hangs up on the needles and actually sublimates back in the atmosphere or gets blown off and maybe it ends up uh, on a lake or another open area clear cut uh, where the snow will kind of accumulate um so a deciduous forest, so an aspen forest, will actually get way more snow. They almost, in a way, they kind of act like a clear cut. They actually absorb more precipitation. And you'll get up to three times more snow under an aspen stand than a conifer stand. And, and Yusuf kind of argues that the aspen uh, forest can contribute to uh, more flooding. And I just want to point out that that's not accurate. Uh so what happens in an aspen forest is the snow is actually partially shaded and it'll actually stick around. You do get more snow and there would be potentially more runoff, but it actually sticks around a lot longer than it would in a clear cut. It actually, some of the last snow of the season you'll find would be in, in a aspen forest uh, because you get the partial shade and that it'll stick around longer. And the water also gets absorbed into the soil. There's more uh, ability to absorb water under deciduous forests. They have a more biologically active kind of humus-rich leaf litter that sucks up a lot of water. And they've done studies where they can c- compare conifer forest with deciduous forest, and you get um, basically the water is metered out much more, even in summertime, over a longer period of time. So you don't get these sudden flash floods. You get more of a gradual uh, release of that water. And then when you've got a drought, uh, this is, becomes important because if you have more deciduous in your landscape and your watershed, you have more reliable stream flows when the dry times hit. So pine trees, pine plantations, they, they basically dry out the landscape. You know, they don't absorb a ton of water and uh, they don't store it that well. So there's a lot of complicated stuff going on with uh, with forest hydrology and and whatnot. So I think Peter wants to... Yeah, I was just going to get to you, Peter. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I agree. There's all sorts of things going on. Now, not the least of which that a standing forest, uh, the amount of water that is absorbed by one tree 
in a year that goes up that tree and is dissipated into the atmosphere is astronomical. You multiply that by 100 million trees, and you know we got a serious problem here. Where is that water going? It's not going up the tree anymore, so it's got to be going into the ground, and the ground can't hold it all, and so it starts moving. And that whole thing has to be looked at. What do you think, Peter? Uh, well, yeah, like I agree with that last thing there. The whole thing has to be looked at. We have to look at things holistically, you know, because uh, if we if we just simply look at uh, phenomena like a tree or, or, or a piece of land, right, just in themselves without looking at the in, at their interconnectedness, uh, problems arise. You know, the, uh, the, the when we look at a at a forest and all that, we can't separate the trees from the from, from the landscape, from the riparian zone, and 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 so on. And I that's one of the one of the problems is, is that way of looking at things. Uh, it favors uh, it, it favors some people, right? Some you know big private interests and all that, but it doesn't favor the environment. It doesn't favor the communities that uh, uh, live in the midst of the forest. No, it doesn't. But on the other hand, if you, uh, I mean, if you try to rebuild it, go back to the old ways. Generally, there's no going back. But if you did and try to create the jobs in that, I mean, you could, you might be able to do something. But you would hit a wall very quickly, and you wouldn't be logging beyond that. We're almost there now, where we're at the end of. Well, we're just not increasing our logging anymore. It's going to remain the same, or it's going to get less and less in the next twenty or thirty, forty years. So we're already past the point of no return as far as I'm concerned at least for 40, 50 years well, I think the old, yeah. the old growth logging I think there's I think there's potential to go into these pine plantations and, and start thinning them out and it'll be totally different you know it's not going to be feller buncher clear cut style forestry it's going to be selective logging yeah no I agree with that but what I'm saying James is that the new model, whatever it might be, is not going to create any jobs, any more jobs than we have now. Not, not, uh, not in the sense of these super mills. I, I think no. you actually get quite a bit of logging jobs yeah. if we start doing this this thinning. Uh, but uh, I don't think the profits are going to be there for the big corporations. I I think that'll be the big the big impact from from the change coming down the pipeline. But. So the other thing I want to touch on is that that the government, as a general rule, and corporations don't talk about these problems. We made reference here today to one report that was put out three or four years ago or something. The government had it on the amount of money that was available from the federal government for disaster relief or something. And they're going to get the provincial government's getting $400 million. Somebody put that out there, but we're not hearing anything. For, and I'm being really explicit on this. We're not hearing anything about any problems in British Columbia from any level of government other than just talking about it once in a blue moon if somebody brings it up. We don't have any problem solvers. You know, everybody's like, just take this for an instance, this money that EB wants to spend before April the 1st, you still got $4 billion to go or something, and they're all running around like maniacs trying to get rid of this money so they don't have to allow it to pay down the debt. Are we insane? <laughs> you know, really, what's going on here? You know, we blew the hell out of the coca or the uh, the highway going down to uh, Vancouver back in the fifties. Dynamited it all. I remember driving down there, and they'd stop you on the side of the road, shut your radio off, and they were blowing kaboom, kaboom. Well, they cracked and split all that rock, and for, for the next fifty years, it's freeze dry, freeze dry, freeze dry. It's starting to fall apart. 
I'll bet to you there's a report somewhere that tells you that there's some serious problems in the canyon and it's going to cost us billions of dollars to fix it. Nobody's talking about it, pretending it's not happening. But we had a touch of it in uh, the floods here a couple of years ago and the BC rail line went underwater and all sorts of things going on. It didn't happen by accident. Okay, we're going to go for a break now. If you're a student between the ages of 7 and 18 who needs a little help with homework, the Saturday Study Hall at the downtown branch of the Prince George Public Library may be just what you need. Every Saturday between 10.30 and 4.30, you can bring your schoolwork and get help from their tutor or your peers. It's a free drop-in event for students, but you are advised to check the website at pgpl.ca for which Saturdays the Study Hall will be in session. Are you thinking of selling your business? It's Dave Fuller here, a business coach and a business broker living right here in Prince George. The challenge of being a business owner is that much of our retirement funds are often tied up in the business. If you are getting ready to retire and sell your business, give me a call, 250-617-7467, and we can talk confidentially about how much your business might be worth and how you might be able to get that money out of the business and into your pocket. Again, Dave Fuller, 250-617-7467, or check out our website, pivotleader.com. At Pivot Leader, we help you grow, train, and sell your business. The Q3 Creative Business Hub is home to the Q3 Community Market. The market has tables available for home-based businesses year-round for greater exposure of your products and services. Reasonably priced in the air-conditioned comfort of the Q3 Creative Business Hub, it's ideal for crafters and independent professionals alike. Reserve your table today by emailing q3building at gmail.com. The Q3 Community Market, Saturdays from 8.30 to 2 at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. Eat healthy and fresh at Homesteader Meats. Founded by Ben and Rosella Clausen in 1982, Homesteader Meats has two premium quality meat and gluten-free products, plus Wednesday is Seniors Day at Homesteader Meats. Seniors 55 and over save 10% off regular prices. Single portions are available in most items, including pierogies and sausages, and are half-pound packages off ground beef, ground pork, stew meat, and meat pies. Everything from Erladen to patties is at Homesteader Meats in two locations, College Heights and Park Hill Center. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back, and uh, we're going to go to James. He has some ideas of why governments can't be a little more proactive with some of these problems that we have, because some of them have been around for a long time, and we have to do something besides just talk about them. Go ahead, James. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a broken record here. I know I've mentioned this before. You know, I think... um, the public sector, the government, you know, used to have this kind of can-do attitude back in World War II of people coming together, supporting supporting each other, coming up with a, a plan of collective action, and the government could actually get stuff done. Um, and I think it was actually too good at doing its job. You know, we, we created public health care. We created things like BC Rail. We, we uh, BC Hydro. You know, we kind of came together to create a lot, of these, a lot of these solutions, and big business didn't like that too much. Uh, because it cut into their bottom line. And so we had this thing called Thatcherism or Reaganomics, where basically we came up, uh, I'd say the kind of corporate elite of, of society came up with this idea that, you know what, government shouldn't be doing stuff. Uh, we should be letting government or industry and private business be doing stuff. And there was this, this great metaphor, uh, you know, society is like a, a canoe, government should be in the back steering, and industry should be the ones that are paddling. And I think what this has done is it's kind of uh, demoralized the public sector, and it's created this concept that uh, bureaucrats 
shouldn't be competent. They shouldn't be able to come up with solutions. And uh, the only thing that should actually get things done is private industry. And, I, I mean, you see this kind of reflected in all sorts of different ways. Privatization, getting rid of BC Rail. Let's let CN Rail, a private monopoly from the East Coast, let's let them run the, the British Columbia Railroad system. Uh, you know, the arguments to privatize healthcare. It's all It's all the same thing, okay? And, and the bottom line is... Uh, the public sector and your average public sector bureaucrat, they shouldn't be effective um, because they might take away what private industry should be doing. And, you, you know, I, I wrote about this a little bit in that column there in the Prince George Citizen. I think it's in Hit hit the Shelves there last week. Uh, you know, Ron Swanson, he's he's a he's a great example of this. I don't know if, who's who watches Parks and Recreation out there, but it's a pretty pretty funny good comedy show uh, i think it kind of gets at the heart of what you talked about before the break there eric and you know why why, why aren't we doing anything where's the problem solving know-how and it's because we have a bunch of ron swansons in government whose goal is to basically destroy government uh and the more incompetent people you can get in there uh the more useless government is the higher the chance it'll get sold off and given to its rightful owner which is private enterprise yeah, but it goes beyond that. It doesn't doesn't stop at the at the uh, city hall door or something. It it goes to the people who vote in this town, or people who refuse to vote, people who don't want to get involved, don't want to make any decisions, don't even want to know what's going on. The, you know, the we're all responsible. Well, the more useless your government is, the less people are going to vote. Like, yeah. who, who cares about your government if it can't do anything and it no, just but, wastes all but, your money and doesn't solve any problems? But when you get to that level, when you you put in the X and the on the ballot, you're the government. That's your opportunity to do something, and we don't take it. We don't use that weapon that we have, and it's a very strong weapon. But we leave it sitting at home in the closet while we're eating a hot dog and watching that show where the guy's screwing up the government. <laughs> but we're not doing anything. What do you think, John? Well, uh, that's that. James hit the the nail pretty close on the head there. Uh, Crown corporations are supposed to be, or corporations in general, big business is supposed to be the solution drivers. They're the ones that are supposed to take care of things. Uh, government is supposed to legislate, delegate, and step out of the road. And the only problem is the real movers and shakers are folks sitting at home coming up with unique innovative ideas and they can't launch because a corporation stomps on them because they're buried under rules and regulations you can't get involved in this because you don't have a certification in this and a degree in that and so that's the other problem the yep. public there's a lot of smart folks sitting at home listening to their radios right now that do have answers they do have ideas and they need to turn around and voice those ideas and the only avenue they have is to reaching out to council or to government. Uh, so no, it's a problem, and we've got to fix it. Yeah, we have to have less hockey games and football games and more uh, civic uh, subject games. Peter? Uh, yeah, no, I, would, I agree with what uh, John and James is saying about the, the, the situation. I think what it, 
what it underlines is the, the need and the necessity to, to look at the whole electoral reform and political process that we have. Because what what's, what's we have right now is a system, uh, a representational system, that basically leaves people out in the cold. You know, we get the vote once every four years, and then uh, the elected representatives get to do what they want, right, often under the thumb of... Uh, of private interests. So, you know, it gets right to the heart of the whole political uh, electoral process. We need we need a process that empowers people, gives people more decision-making power, more say in terms of what goes on. Because without that, people, yeah, they, they get uh, disillusioned. They say, well, what can you do? Like, it, like banging your head against the wall. So I think that's one of the things that... Uh, you know, comes to the fore here is that we have to look at the uh, the, the electoral and political process and uh, look at it if, uh, to develop new kinds of mechanisms that empower people, not disempower people. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, look, there's uh, Ministry of Forests uh, have been aware of a lot of these problems for a long time. Uh, Anthony Britneff, uh, forester working for Ministry of Forests for over 40 years and retired last year, uh, has documented how the ministry has been basically co-opted by industry. Kofi actually had an office within the Ministry of Forests to help with legislation. Uh, until last month, um, there was a clause put in um, that uh, no planning could occur that would unduly affect uh, the amount of timber harvested. I mean, that's obviously put in by by industry. So, you know, we, we can't... Uh, can't look away from this. You know, this is um, uh, this is uh, Ministry of Forests is basically not working for the public. It's working for industry, and you know, we've got to start uh, reclaiming our forests somehow. One step would be to um, uh, give give local communities more say over their forests. Uh, you know, community forests is a, is a good example. Another thing is, um, you know, the government can't be afraid to take on Ministry of Forests. And to start, um, uh, you know, perhaps localizing some decision making. So, Ministry of Forest is really hamstrung both by the corporations that that do control it, uh, and the fact that they're located in Victoria. Okay, we're going to go to break and then come back, and we'll finish this subject off and uh, head on to something else. The time we have left. The Spruce City Lions Club has a Recycle for Sight collection box at the Seniors Resource Centre. Drop off no longer used prescription and non-prescription glasses, sunglasses and readers, even if they're broken. Donated glasses will be cleaned, categorized by prescription, and prepared for distribution to people in developing countries. Used hearing aids are also being accepted. The Spruce City Lions Club Recycle for Sight collection box in the new Seniors Resource Centre, 1335th Avenue. Lunch is on at the Elder City. Citizens Recreation Association. Open Monday through Friday, excluding holidays. Enjoy a nutritious and delicious meal at a great price. Stop by the center to pick up this month's menu schedule, then dine in or order ahead for takeout. For more information, stop by or contact the center at 250-561-9381. That's lunch, now being served Monday through Friday from 1130 to 1 at the ECRA on 10th between Vancouver and Winnipeg. 
Discover all the wonderful recreation, sport, and art groups in Prince George Saturday, April 22nd at your public library. Stop by the Bob Harkins Branch downtown and see what our great city has to offer. Room is still available for local not-for-profit groups who want to promote their programs. Details are available through the events page at pgpl.ca. It's a chance for organizations to recruit new members and promote their upcoming events in a friendly, accessible public location. The Active Living Fair, April 22nd at your Prince George Public Library. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, winds from the north at 30. A high of 1 with a morning wind chill to minus 11. Tonight, clear. North winds becoming light this evening, a low of minus 10. For Tuesday, sunny and a high of 5. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back and uh, we're going to go to a different subject. I just wanted to say there's four or five headlines around. You know, we talked about the one, the logging and the landslide. There's that new toxic drug or variation of a toxic drug on the streets. Uh, B.C. government, multi-year boost to subsidize veterinary education. We'll get into that one if we have the time. Dysfunctional governments in the regional district and the municipals, municipalities. British Columbia is still waiting too long for hip and knee replacements. Um, and it goes on and on and on. And, of course, the question is, so what are you doing about it? We're paying you 250000 a year, 186000 a year, 165000 a year, whatever. We've got hundreds of thousands of you around, and you're called civil servants or public servants or, or whatever. So the question is, what are you doing about the problems? It's not up to us or people on the street to solve these problems. We put you on the payroll to do that. And the fact that we still got a street problem here and six levels of government can't solve it is, a, you know, the, the, there's something seriously wrong here. And now we're going to go and get a bunch of other people to get involved and talk about it and get the MPs involved and get the <laughs> the uh, MLAs involved. No, we don't need more people to be involved. We need people on the payroll to solve the problem. So I want to go to the veterinarian one now because uh, I think this is rather interesting. The B.C. government announces multi-year boost to subsidize veterinary education. And then it's, uh, you know, the, uh, we send people to uh, the university in Saskatchewan because they trained the vets. <clears throat> I think we had 20 uh, there, and we're going to double it to 40. And then they say, you know, because of the uh, cattle industry and farming and that, we have a shortage of veterinarians. And the uh, kind of, oh, yeah, and uh, pets. But I'm going to say that pets are the major reason why we don't have veterinarians. And the pet industry, the pet food industry, is a multi-billion dollar industry. And everybody in there... Everybody and their dog has a cat. <laughs> anyway, there's lots of pets around, and they're eating up all the uh, the veterinarians. But, you know, as far as I know, veterinarianism is a private business. You open up your business, you're a vet, and people bring their animals there. Now we get the government subsidizing it, to the, and then they said if they get cost them $400,000 to become a, a, a vet and they borrow the money, that maybe we should... Forgive those loans. But I think the next step then is to get uh, public health care for your pets. I think that's what we have now, from the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Judge? Yeah, no, it's. I can see the government subsidizing the education. 
the, the part I can't seem to understand, maybe I'm missing something somewhere, but it takes almost eight years to get certified as a, as a veterinarian, card-carrying veterinarian. Uh, it takes six years to become a doctor, entry-level doctor uh, in general practice. Um, it's, it's funny that it takes you longer and the qualifications are tougher to become a veterinarian than it is to be an MD. Um, so, you know, maybe it's it's a little twisted theory. I, I don't know. I don't get it. Being a veterinarian should be fairly simple to get into. Um, we we do need vets uh, diversified in the, whether it's uh, marine uh, veterinary services or you know uh, animals animals <laughs> uh, pets and then agricultural veterinarian services. I mean that there's there's all sorts of the need for a vet is diversified for the number of critters running around. So I can see where it would be specialized in some cases. But, yeah, trying to get them in, uh, a lot of young students in to become vets, there's a lot that want to be, and they get discouraged because it's expensive. You think being a GP is expensive, go and be a veterinarian. Yeah, I can understand that. I can see where, you know, people need some help to uh, to get the, uh, you know, the training that they need in order to do these things. You know, even something as simple as putting in a pipeline, we had to train a lot of people to learn how to weld in order to get that job done. So there's there's all sorts of reasons why we should do things. But the other side of the coin is what happens to this highly trained veterinarian when he graduates? And does he come to Prince George to work here? Does he go to uh, Quebec? Does he go to the United States? There's nothing to say that he's going he can go anywhere in the world, actually. Yeah. And uh, they do. I don't know if they go around the world, but they certainly go... The United States takes a lot of people that we train uh, because we train them so well. And yeah, they get our them standards for, are higher. Yeah, and they just get them basically cheap. So if we're training people just to go someplace else, then maybe we better have a look at this model and see if there's some way we can change it. Well, so maybe we should look at the, uh, the model of uh, tuition forgiveness if you go into a region and you practice for six years. So you move into northern BC as a veterinarian, uh, you sign on the dotted line, you'll get your tuition forgiven, and you stay there for six years, and then after six years you want to pull up stakes and go, you can. So maybe maybe we need to look at that, because that's what the Americans were doing with their, their health care. They were getting doctors to go into remote locations and sign on the dotted line and get some of their uh, tuition covered, as well as subsidies. So maybe we need to look at a modified program like that. Same thing with nursing and doctors here. You know, lure them up here, get them to sign a contract to stay for X duration, and, uh, you know, that's how you uh, fill in the blanks. Well, we had the program here for doctors that train them in the north, they'll stay in the north. I haven't seen any numbers that verified that that actually happened in the last 10 or 15 years, but I suppose we could say, for veterinarians, if you train them in Saskatchewan, they'll stay in Saskatchewan. Or would they? You know? Yeah. What do you think? Oh, sorry. Uh, well, I've actually got a cousin. Uh, she's a veterinarian. She married a veterinarian. Uh, he does the uh, large animals. They live in a rural area. <coughs> and um, she does the uh, the pets. And the, uh, the pets, actually, is where all the money is. So... Um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think people are going to move to wherever there's a lot of pets. So <laughs> I think that's that's going to be the bottom line. You know, it, it gets tricky, you know, when you start uh, trying to make business decisions for people. It, look, it, it's uh, if people want to have uh, pets, uh, they're going to have to pay for them. And uh, I don't know, like, you know, how much government control should there be? I mean, it basically, it is a free market society after all. Well, it's supposed to be a free market society, but uh, are we going for a break there? Okay, we're going to go for a break. Um, the Prince George Cantata Singers are presenting their spring concert Saturday, May 13th at St. Michael's Church. Take in this uplifting evening of music celebrating creatures that fly. The choir will be under the direction of Ariana Crossland and accompanied by Maureen Nelson. The evening will also feature guest musicians Shoshana Godber, Kathleen Peters, Allison Bell, and Noel Jago. Tickets are available from choir members and online at pgcantatasingers.ca. That's the Prince George Cantata Singers Spring Concert, Saturday, May 13th at St. Michael's Church. The end of the week is time for well-earned relaxation and play. Join Two Rivers Gallery this Friday for Art Disco. Create a large-scale origami creature after inking and decorating your own giant pages. Sign up to enjoy an evening of artistic expression in a fun atmosphere with a complimentary beverage. The cost is $25, and pre-registration is required for this 19-plus event. Giant Origami, the next Art Disco, 7 o'clock this Friday evening at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. Two Rivers Gallery has a brand new permanent collection database. It's an easier way for you to browse the gallery's archives with improved search engine. Access the database through permanent collection page under exhibitions and collections at tworiversgallery.ca. Then browse by collection or artist, do an advanced search, or create a list of favorites. More information on the permanent collection is available online and at the gallery. It's the home for art right here in Prince George, Two Rivers Gallery in Canada Games Plaza. The True North Business Development Forum is back and better than ever. Join your Prince George Chamber of Commerce on May 4th for a full day of insightful discussions, panels, and presentations from thought-leading experts on economic development, leadership, and partnerships. Registration and full details are available through the Chamber's website, pgchamber.bc.ca. The True North Business Development Forum from your Prince George Chamber of Commerce, Thursday, May 4th at the Courtyard by Marriott. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. So we're back, and uh, so that's it, I think, for the veterinary uh, education and I, you know if we need more vets we need more vets we'll have to do what we need to do to get it but I think we also have to be cognizant of the fact that the pet food industry and the pet industry is now a multi-billion dollar industry and it's being promoted 24-7 to get people to buy their dogs and uh, do the rest of it and of course when you get that rolling now you've got this long you know like you can wait two three four months to see a vet in some areas and it's only a matter of time if it keeps up they're just not going to be available well they will be available but to the highest bidder and because it's a private business it's not you know they're not regulating what they can charge you for going there they're just training people to be there when you go there and they charge you whatever the traffic will bear and I'll tell you, some of it's eye-opening. And the people that own dogs and cats and other pets, they know that. We're in a designer dog and cat industry now. Mm-hmm. You know, you, if you want to buy a mutt, you'll never find one. <laughs> they, don't, they don't make mutts anymore. <laughs> or what you used to call the, the 57 variety dog. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not around. The Heinz 57? Yes. It doesn't uh-huh. exist. 
No, one time that's all we had, and they just ate scraps off the table, so things change. So just wanted to touch on this uh, toxic drug in Prince George, the latest one. And Herb, do you want to maybe just talk on that? And Where are we with this now? This is 20-some-odd people uh, overdosed in the last three days. I seen somebody on Saturday laying on the street, and somebody was giving them a needle. And, uh you know, just what do you think? It's, I mean, it's just a variation on a theme, right? So, you know, Prince George is already one of the worst places in BC for uh, drug overdoses. Um, this is going to keep on happening until the government takes over control of the supply. And, uh, you know, we really need safe safe drugs uh, administered um, or supplied by the, by the government. And uh, we've got to eliminate the... Uh, the, the street tra- street traffic and street trafficking of these drugs, um, <clears throat> for whatever reason, um, dealers uh, seem to have you know take no care of whatsoever of their uh, their customers, and um, and seem to kill them off uh, with abandon and uh, and keep finding more. So uh, yeah, it's time to end this. This is it's brutal. What's going on? Yeah, I would certainly say so. Uh, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that, you know, the government turning around and saying, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. They've actually, the government was a big player in this whole, creating this whole problem over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And a lot of the other problems, whether it's clear-cut logging or whatever it is, if you dig deep enough, you'll find out that most of it was a result of bad decisions made by governments. And... uh they never take responsibility for anything. It's amazing. Nobody's ever responsible for anything anymore. They just, well, you know, somebody should be getting fired. What should be happening? Well, you'd think, right? Yeah. It would It would be nice if somebody actually was accountable. You and I, if we screw up downtown, and we're, you know, we're witness screwing up downtown, yeah, darn rights, we're going to be held accountable. Yeah. But, oh my gosh, you happen to be in a, a hallowed hall of administration Anywhere, provincially, federally, municipally, nah, you're immune. Just put on your raincoat, it runs off you. The the big problem with the toxic drugs that we're seeing in town now is they're laced with it's laced with xylene. Xylene is an animal anesthetic, large animal anesthetic. That coupled with the, the fentanyl. Now they're they're grabbing it because they think the xylene extends the effect and the high of the fentanyl it doesn't all it does is it well it basically if unchecked it it euthanizes them right there uh it sedates them so far that they're gone no amount of naloxone is going to bring them back so and this is a problem this is the toxic drugs that's what it is it's toxic drugs you would think at some point in time the message will get through to the end user that Maybe they need to look at a safer alternative. But you're trying to talk sense to a rock. So to anybody that would think that talking to a person who is suffering from a drug addiction is going to be using logic and clear clear thought is impossible. So that's where we have to look at some model to encourage a change. What that is, I don't know. Go ahead, James. Yeah, I just uh, read an interesting uh, 
comment on the weekend, and I think a lot of people forget this as well, myself included, is that, is that fentanyl is actually a legal drug, right? You can you can go to the hospital and you can get a prescription uh, for fentanyl if, if you've, you're suffering a lot of pain. So it's not like you know some kind of illegal narcotic. This is it's already legalized. And just to echo Herb's point, you know the time has come to provide a safe supply of this. Uh, a supply that uh, you know make that makes sure that we are, we're not losing people because they're they're taking some of this contaminated this contaminated product that uh, shouldn't be shouldn't exist. Peter, you got some comment on that? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, just to uh, you know support what uh, James and John are, t- are talking and Herbert talking about, you know, the whole question of uh, of safe supply. Because the problem is we can't control the creation of new drugs. You know, like you have fentanyl, and then, and then uh, if you don't, okay, you push fentanyl aside, then there's car fentanyl, then there's the, uh, these animal kinds of drugs, and every, every year there's dozens and dozens of new drugs being, being made. You know, the question comes down to a philosophical one. You know, when, do, you know, does the state have the right to limit what people choose to ingest? You know, like th- th- that to me is a fundamental question. You know, because uh, this war on drugs has not worked, and it is is not working. And uh, so I think that uh, the the issue is going to lie somewhere, w- providing some kind of safe supply, but also in the long term, getting into the culture of why people take drugs. You know, that whole idea that you. Uh, you should uh, get away from reality and, and take something that uh, take some kind of drug that um, dopes you up or whatever and all that. You know why is that happening? So I think we have to look at uh, the safe supply aspect of things because we can't control the, the number of new drugs that are coming on the on the market all the time. And and, and secondly, look at the culture that uh, gives rise to it. Yeah, I think the, the, to try to figure out the why of it and the professional basis is a little difficult. I got lots of instances where there's four or five people in a family one has a drug problem and the rest don't mm-hmm. and he ends up on the street. Now that would be interesting to f- figure out how that happened and what the dynamics are to it but we never even get the point of looking to see well, how that happens. Yeah. So, Herb. Uh, yeah, I just uh, want to mention, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of sympathy for people on the street or uh, have a problem with drugs. And I'd just like to go back. There's a really interesting interview that John Brink did with uh, Brian Fair, one of the leading uh, businessmen in northern B.C., who admitted in that interview that he'd been a heroin addict for a long time. And uh, thanks to uh, his family intervention, he was able to turn his life around. You know, there's a lot of people with a lot of potential out there who are suffering from addiction. And if they have access to safe supply, they can actually make it. Okay, that's our program for today. I want to thank my panel and everybody that listened. And we'll be back uh, next Monday, maybe with, I said this before, but maybe with something a little more laughable or interesting or happy. But don't count on it. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. 
Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 FM.